0: please pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the things that you taught us this week, things that you led us through, valleys you led us through, the mountains you led us up to. We thank you that you have been with us every step of the way. We thank you that you are our only sure, strong, powerful foundation. All we have is you. Everything else in this world, and we're seeing it very clearly now is just fading away it's not fading away quietly but it's fading away and we know that the only thing that will last is Jesus we know that the only thing that will last is the word of God the word of God will endure forever we know that uh, the things that we go through in this life are not always the way it's going to be there will be a day when you will return for us and we will be able to rejoice for eternity with you We look forward to that day. I pray that you bless our time this morning, that your word would go forth, your spirit would go forth, and we would all grow a little bit closer to you uh, through this, this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I learned some things this week uh, that I had never heard of before uh, on a historical research site. For instance, we all know of the 13 original British colonies in the US, which became the original 13 states. But did you know that there was a 14th state that sort of existed for a very short period of time? Only about a year after the American Revolutionary War ended in 1784, frontiersmen living in the western portion of North Carolina were unhappy with the way the North Carolina state government was working so they got together and they formed their own state separate from North Carolina which they called Frankland. there, there are a couple of well I, I see one Frank that maybe would like to have a new state named after him the people of Franklin even elected their own representatives and drafted their own state constitution About a year after that, in 1785, the leaders of Franklin petitioned Congress for their statehood. They even tried to bolster their petition by renaming their new state Franklin, instead, in honor of Benjamin Franklin. And even though seven out of 13 states voted to recognize Franklin as the 14th state, it wasn't enough to meet the two thirds vote of Congress that the Articles of Federation required. Not defeated, those who dubbed themselves Franklinites continued to exist in their own little republic that didn't actually exist for another four years until their government collapsed in conflict with North Carolina and North Carolina assumed full control over that territory. But pretty soon after that, North Carolina ceded that exact same territory to the federal government and it eventually became the territory that the state of Tennessee uh, came out of. Fun fact, American folk folk hero Davy Crockett was born during the years of the Franklin Territory. His father was a passionate Franklinite and Davy was also technically a Franklinite since he was born in that territory. But could you imagine if the 14th state of Franklin had actually and officially become a state? In, state, in school, uh, kids would be learning about the first states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware, and Franklin. <laughs> in the 1930s, an American woman named Virginia Hall, who described herself as capricious and cantankerous, seems like a nice lady you'd want to get to know, was watching the international tensions happening between Germany and the rest of Europe, and was determined to make some sort of difference. To do so, Hall went to uh, college and became fluent in four different European languages. And after graduation, applied to work for the US Foreign Service. She failed twice to be hired the first time for being a woman and the second time for a disability she incurred when accidentally shooting herself in the leg on a hunting trip. Seems like a real interesting person, this lady. Hall would not give up, though. And when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, igniting World War II, she went over to France to help with their war effort. Upon noticing Hall's service, a British spy recruited Hall to join Churchill's secret organization, the Special Operations Executive, or SOE. As a part of the SOE, Hall is credited with many exploits to help the allied war effort and was even known by the Nazi Gestapo as, quote, the most dangerous of all allied spies. Hall was never caught and after World War II was awarded the second highest military decoration and continued to work for the CIA, which ended up naming a training facility in her honor. Just as these historical developments and people are often overlooked in history yet made a profound impact on history and even how things are today, we often overlook the powerful impact of what is going on behind the scenes all around us all the time and what is going on in the world. We'll find out more about what that is along with what that means for us personally as we work our way through our passage this morning. We're continuing with Jesus' conversation, if you want to call it that, with numerous people angrily shouting accusations at him in the temple during the last Feast of Tabernacles in the fall before he's crucified the following spring Passover. The tension has only increased more and more, starting with the crowd joining with the religious leaders and accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. The tension is just built up. More and more, leading to Jesus making yet again one more declaration that since he is from God the Father or has been sent from close alongside the Father, where he's existed for eternity, he is God. That's what brings us to our passage this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verse 30. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one Uh, a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Uh, You can also turn there or look this passage up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 30, we read this. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It all comes to a head here. Like we talked about last week, the crowd at the temple that day is looking around them, not seeing their religious leaders doing anything about Jesus, and so take matters into their own hands. As we saw in verse 25, the crowd, along with everyone, knows that the leaders are seeking to kill Jesus. And so they join in on that sentiment. Sentiment. Some from the crowd, verse 30 tells us, want to grab a hold of Jesus in order to arrest him themselves. But instead, something incredible happens. No one actually lays a hand on him. We're not told what actually holds them back, but it's obviously something supernatural. For John makes a point of saying it's because Jesus' hour to be arrested had not come yet. Perhaps those who wanted to grab Jesus were immediately filled with a sense of overwhelming dread that if they did so, they would be cursed. Whatever it was, the inextricable connection between it not being the right timing for it yet and Jesus not being forcibly arrested right then and there is undeniable. There are others in that crowd, however, who are a little bit more reasonable. Verse 31 But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ, or the Messiah, comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? According to one biblical scholar, most Jewish people at this point, along with their rabbis and religious leaders, only taught and viewed the prophesied Messiah as providing enough signs to validate that he was indeed the prophet that would be like Moses. But it was only enough, just enough, to validate that. So some people in this crowd are saying to one another, the Messiah is only supposed to provide enough miraculous signs to validate that he's the Messiah. Yet this guy has performed a ton. He's gone way above and beyond the expectation for miraculous signs. There shouldn't have to be any more evidence that he's the Messiah and the prophet like Moses, right? The irony of this is that the people have noted that Jesus has performed enough miracles and signs to prove he's the Messiah, but yet the religious leaders keep demanding that Jesus perform just one more sign to prove it. The fact of the matter was that Jesus didn't even just perform wonders like Moses had, even though the Bible teaches it was actually God working through Moses. Sure, Moses waved his staff and a river turned to blood, massive amounts of frogs, flies, and gnats covered the land, livestock died, people were tormented by skin boils, giant pieces of hail fell, darkness covered the land, the Red Sea was split, water gushed out of rocks, and everyone who looked at the bronze serpent he commanded to have made were healed from fatal snake bites. But Jesus healed people just by speaking words. He brought a kid back from the edge of death with two words and being miles away from him. He made people who couldn't see from birth suddenly have 20-20 vision. He fed upwards of 20,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. He healed a man who couldn't walk for 40 years just by telling him to get up. And... In only a short while, he would call a man out of the grave who had been dead for days. What more could Jesus do to prove he was the Messiah? Yes, Jesus would do several more miracles, but the capstone would be when he physically dies and then comes back to life on the third day. And yet today, just as it was 2,000 years ago, That's still not even enough for some people. Like we touched on last week, the evidence, however, is staring you right in the face. You can either accept it or reject it, but that's your decision. The evidence is there. Some people declare, I'll believe in God if he does such and such, like heal me or my loved one or let me win the lottery, or open up the skies and shout out his existence, then I'll believe in God. Jesus has already done plenty and continues to do plenty in human lives to give more than enough evidence to his royalty, his deity, and his death and resurrection on behalf of your sin. Last week, when we talked about the religious leaders, we talked about how, for all intents and purposes, they were being agnostics in their actions. They weren't doing anything or making any kind of decision about Jesus. So much so, that the crowd is looking at them, and the lack of decisive leadership, and muttering to themselves, they don't really know what to make of this Jesus of Nazareth, do they? Now the religious leaders are hearing what else the people are muttering to each other. That there was even the slightest possibility that any of them could be believing in Jesus of Nazareth in any way. So now they're forced to do something about it. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. According to one biblical scholar, the chief priests were mostly from the religious party of the Sadducees, so they, in combination with the Pharisees, implies that an impromptu meeting of the Jewish ruling entity, the Sanhedrin, had taken place. Possibly while Jesus is continuing to teach in the temple. Now that it was clear, that people were being swayed by the claims of this Nazarene, they determined that it was finally time to set aside their fear and send the Levitical temple guards to arrest this blasphemer. When the temple guards arrive on scene, backed by the authority of the Sanhedrin, they are met with this response from Jesus, verses 33-34, through 34, our scripture reading today. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The religious leaders had their plan. but God had his own plan. As noted by one biblical scholar, there are a couple of ways to understand Jesus' words here, and both are equally true. Jesus says that those against him would seek him and not find him, and where he would be, they could not go. What does he mean by that? Well, firstly, this could be referring to the grave in which Jesus would be laid. They would go seek him there, but on the third day, he's not there. He's no longer there. That in turn would lead to what Jesus refers to next, that he would return to God the Father and where he would be at that point, they would not be able to go. What's he talking about there? That following his resurrection from the grave, he would ascend back to where he came from. He's been telling these people all this time where that is. God the Father and his kingdom of heaven. The warning in these statements is very clear. Jesus would only be there for a short time while longer, a little while longer. And Israel's opportunity is only open a short while longer for them to repent and take Jesus as their Messiah. Once that door closes, very soon now, or they die before that door closes, the result is the same. No matter how much they prided themselves on how well they followed the Mosaic Law, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same warning to us today. If you have not yet put the trust of where you'll be spending your eternity in Jesus' death and resurrection for you, on behalf of you as a substitute for your sin, you have no clue when that door for that opportunity will close. By door of opportunity, I mean the end of any of our earthly lives. We have no clue when our earthly life is done. The door of opportunity to put our faith in Jesus for our salvation and only way to get to heaven is closed and it will be too late. If you've been on the fence and have never wanted to make a decision about that, take Jesus' warning to the temple guards here as a warning to you as well. Repent of your sin and put the trust of your eternity in and the death and resurrection of the one who died to save you from it, and, it and, and, and eternity spent in hell. Here's the underlying point that everything we talked about today is connected to. Any plan that any individual human has, any plan that humanity as a whole has in this world, and any plan that Satan has, To bypass, override, or even thwart God's plan is woefully and pathetically futile. The only plan that will ever stand is God's plan, and it's God's plan that overrides bypasses or thwarts all other plans that could ever be contrived this is true on both an individual level and on a global level let's go back to this morning's passage tensions keep rising within the crowd jesus is teaching in the temple until they can't take it anymore and they say if the leaders aren't going to do anything about this blasphemer then we will but well, what happens Instead of them actually doing anything about their desires, something else stops them. They're unwilling to actually follow through with their threats. And like I mentioned earlier, it's clearly because it's God who stops them. Why? Because it it isn't his timing in his plan yet for any of this to happen. There will be a time for it, but this point is not it. And then armed guards backed with the authority of the Sanhedrin showed up with the exact same intent to arrest Jesus officially. But we'll see further on in this chapter that the guards don't even arrest Jesus at that point either. Why? Because it wasn't God's timing in his plan yet. Here's the thing we have to know here. What was the required form of execution in the Mosaic Law which the Pharisees prided themselves so much on following for blasphemy. What was the required execution? Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. That was the required execution. Crucifixion was not the common way of putting blasphemers to death in Jewish law. It was through stoning. And every time either common Jewish people or in any kind of Jewish authority sought to kill Jesus, it was through stoning. You can look it up. But that was not the way God's plan had Jesus to die. We have some prophetic glimpses at the way God's plan intended for Jesus to die. The Passover lamb was always supposed to be a prophetic reference to the Messiah's death. And what do we read about the death of that lamb? It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring any of the meat outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Is it possible to be killed by stoning and not have any of your bones be broken? No, that's the whole point of it as a means of death. But crucifixion allows one to die without any bones broken. And the apostle John will make that connection further on in this gospel. For these things took place so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. Likewise, Zechariah 12:10 states about the Messiah in end times and Um, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of pleading so that they will look at me whom they pierced. That's the word that's used there in Zechariah. Pierced. The word used for pierced means to be run through with sharp objects. Rocks don't do that. Crucifixion nails and a spear do. Do. And John certainly connects Jesus' crucifixion death with what had been prophesied about it by quoting Zechariah 12.10 in John 19.37. And again, another scripture says, he's referring to Zechariah, they will look at him whom they pierced. Likewise, David wrote the most graphic prophecy of what can only be fulfilled by way of uh, of crucifixion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. When one's arms were stretched out across a cross and dropped into a hole prepared to hold the cross, your arms are excruciatingly ripped out of joint, and looking across, you can see your shoulder bones coming through your skin. I don't mean this to be overly disgusting. I mean this entirely as a fulfillment of prophecy. Stoning does not allow you to do that. And again, hands and feet are not pierced or run through in a stoning. Here's my point. If the Jewish crowd or authorities had had their way in our passage this morning, outside of God's prophetic plan, they would have stoned Jesus Just like they tried to numerous other times, and just like they did with Deacon Stephen not too long after this. Jesus needed to be crucified to fit God's plan. And in order to do that, since the Sanhedrin did not have the legal authority to proceed with it at that point, they needed to go to the Romans to see Jesus as enough of a threat to do so. And in order to get the Romans to see Jesus as enough of a threat to do so, Jesus had to be enough of, uh, 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 on their radar and enough of a threat to their keeping control over an already powder keg Judah to knowingly crucify a man who didn't break any Roman laws and was innocent according to those laws. Furthermore, Jesus' death had to be famous enough that a large number of people needed to know that it happened in order to put their faith in it. A small group of people in the temple who stoned Jesus or threw him into prison wouldn't do that. A Roman governor presiding over Jerusalem and over a very public, loud, and violent trial Ordering a sign that read the king of the Jews to be hung over a crucified Nazarene in the three major languages of the day. While Jerusalem was packed for Passover with people from all over the Roman Empire would do that. Do You see how it all had to go according to God's plan? Overall, again, it wasn't God's timing yet here in our passage this morning, and his plan would happen the way he had always intended it to happen, and it would not be thwarted. Like I said before, this plan includes both God's plan for individual lives and for the whole world. We see this played out in Jesus' personal healings of individuals and his personal conversations with others. We see this played out in his death and resurrection, which would soon reach the corners of the Roman Empire and beyond within a few years of it happening. And we will see this happening when Jesus himself comes back for us in a global gathering event known as the rapture. Isaiah says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We often think of this verse in terms, or these two verses, in terms of God's reasoning for why he does what he does and why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. But this verse also includes the carrying out of that plan, my ways the ways God carries out his plan will never be stopped, both for our good and in the testing of our faith, which is also for our good. We can often see God's plan when good things are happening, right? We can see his hands moving, we can see the puzzle pieces being put together, and we can look back on things and see how God worked out his plan. But it's during the times in between The times of waiting, the times of pain and confusion and impatience and depression and anxiety and fear of what's going to happen, that we have to especially keep all of what we're talking about this morning at the forefronts of our minds and hearts. Sometimes we think that things are random, pointless, chaotic, but rest assured, God's plan is being worked out in both the small details and the overall big events. The way he thinks, connects things, and orchestrates everything is infinitely transcendent over any reasoning we can possibly have as finite human beings. And the way he carries out what he's already determined in his plan and works everything out together is beyond anything we can comprehend happening how God is going to heal you, how God is going to provide for you, how God is going to protect you, how God is going to give you his comfort and peace in the darkest of situations, that's not for you to figure out. That's not for you to figure out. Even in the tiniest details of our lives, God is constantly working out his plan. We're called to seek Him, not try to figure out all the solutions to our problems. One of the treasures we have as believers is that we don't need to worry about details in our lives. And instead, we're commanded not to worry about the details in our lives. What we are commanded to do is to seek God is to seek to have a deeper faith and relationship with Him through Jesus and to seek to please Him by following the standards He's already laid out in His Word. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. He says, so don't worry about these things. I'm commanding you. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. It's very simple, isn't it? It's hard to live out, but it's very simple. Is any situation, pain, or potential worry outside of this? No. Not at all. We like to think there is. We like to think, well, my situation's special. My situation's outside of this. But in light of everything we've talked about this morning, nothing is outside of that. And everything is included in that. These are all truths we have to be reminded of on a constant basis because the world is so loud and because we're all being gaslighted by the enemy of our souls and the powers in this world he influences. So he and his demons whisper, you should be depressed about this. You should be fearful and full of worry over this. You have no hope. You should be anxious about what's happening in this country and in this world. But what have we already read in God's word? Do any of those thoughts, mental states, or emotions line up with, He will give you everything you need? No. Do any of them line up with my thoughts and ways are higher than yours or anyone else's for that matter? Not at all. So what are they? They're lies from the heart of the kingdom of darkness. That's what they are. Remember this. Put on all of God's armor So that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies. See, he doesn't just come right at you in your face. Sometimes he does that. We're seeing that a lot more today. But he's got strategies. He's got schemes. He's got plans he's putting together to attack you. That is why we have to put on all of God's armor so that we can stand firm against all of these strategies and schemes and plans. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. That's what we see, but that's not who we're really fighting against. What we're really fighting against is evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. But rest assured, there is no scheme There's no lie, there's no strategy, and there's no full-throttle attack by Satan or the kingdom of darkness that can or will defeat God or his plan. Any of these attempts is futile. God's plan will never be thwarted. God's plan is the overwhelmingly most powerful override to any situation that looks hopeless. His plan includes detailed solutions to all of your problems. And His plan includes all the details in His orchestration of what happens in this country and in this world. He has already won. He already has a purpose. He already has a plan. His end times global plan for the world will happen. His plan of salvation for us from our sin and restoration to him has already been won by the blood of Christ. The enemy knows this, and the enemy knows his time is short, so he's giving it everything he's got, clearly, just in the past year or two, and so much more fiercely right now. It's no wonder then, we look around us, Even in the United States, and we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of biblical Christianity, and living according to God's standards and his inerrant and infallible word are enemy number one by the world. But rest assured, as loud as the devil's roar is, he is already defeated and he has no power over you. God and his plan are the only authorities over you, your future, your eternity, and what happens in this world. Our lives themselves, every detail of them, our salvation, and our future all begin and continue for eternity with God and his plan for us. That foundation is what Jesus is driving at when he teaches his disciples to pray in a certain way. And that's what I want all of us to be redirected to and refocused on. And We're going to do something a little bit different. How we're going to end our time, uh, our message time today is I want everybody to read this along with me out loud. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in a certain way. And he says this. So please, please read along with me. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray heavenly father we thank you for these words that are summed up in the lord's prayer it's all based on your sovereignty it's all based on your plan the details of your plan and how you're working out the details of that plan in our lives and in this world let us not lose heart let us not get depressed anxious fearful let us continually look for hope look to the author and finisher of our faith, knowing that he has already won our salvation for us, God's plan will never be thwarted, and Jesus is coming back for us someday. Let us go out into this dark and futile world with that hope, that peace, and that power. In Jesus' name, amen.